Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ of the Cure. Today we are continuing the Denomination series, and in fact, this will be the last installment of the Denomination series that focuses on one group, and the next installment will be the miscellaneous episode where we kind of rapid fire through various groups that could be considered, but that we didn't get to, but that I can give you enough information about that you can go look into them and kind of recognize their names in different areas. Furthermore, at the end of this entire series, I will have a document put up on the website in PDF form and a blog post form that it's going to be called uh, Denomination Series Guide. And it's basically going to be a list of what's covered in each episode with key names. It's kind of like a general index, including all of the links that I provided in each description of the episode so that you can rapidly get through um, and reference the Denomination Series or just go to a particular website on a particular issue. So I'm hoping to put that together. I wanted to make it a good tool that kind of rounds off the denomination series. If you are a patron within a month, ideally after the series ends, I will have an entire PDF or EPUB file that you can upload to your Kindle um, of the entire show notes. So it'll basically be a mini book. I think it's like 135 pages right now and I still have more pages to put together. So that will be available for patrons. Like I said, ideally within a month after posting the last episode, because I want to edit it, polish it up, make it um, coherent, right? Because whenever I type up notes, I'm not really worried about polishing up the text or grammatical issues and all that stuff. So that will be available for patrons, which by the way, remember that Christ the Cure is subscriber supported. Prayerfully consider joining the patron team for minimally a year. This guarantees that Christ the Cure can continue into season five, but also it helps Christ the Cure going forward in general, which by the way, I'm looking forward to the next series after the denomination series, after the denomination series finishes, we'll have a week or two off so I can begin the preparation or start polishing those notes for the next series, which I'm hoping will be a tool that can be used far and wide, right? And so details of that will come out later. If you're a patron, you already got a good glimpse at that in, I don't know, last week's update. Anyway, prayerfully consider joining the patron team at patreon.com forward slash Christ is the cure. And let's get into today's episode, which again is on the restoration movement with its most prominent group uh, being the Church of Christ. Most people know the Church of Christ and name minimally. And you'll see why this group becomes particularly difficult as we go forward. So the Restoration Movement is probably one of the most disconnected from the Protestant tradition because Protestants historically viewed themselves as being in continuity with the historic church as Western Christians. Now, one thing that I personally have come to conclude is that this movement had a greater ideological impact on modern American evangelical circles than most realize. And I say American because I'm not really sure how this movement played out elsewhere because it was born in American soil, but it's not the only one that kind of did the same thing. It's just the one that was really established and lives on today. But you'll see a lot of the ideas that come from this movement are in your everyday Christian that you might encounter online or in the streets, right? Uh, especially with the growth of non-denominational churches, which come from this movement. We talked a little bit about that in Denominations 8, I believe, on the Baptist but let's go ahead and uh, push forward. So we're going to treat this movement as a broad stream, similar to the way we did the Anabaptist installment and the Reformed installment. 
but it will narrow down slightly and you'll find that the other sections in this installment will be pretty short because of the nature of these churches. Now, I mentioned how there is a disconnect from these churches from the Protestant tradition in terms of how Protestants historically viewed continuity with the historic church. And that's really seen in that this movement began with this negative view of church history, believing that after the New Testament era, there was a steep decline in true biblical doctrine and practice. This idea is not new. It could be seen in a number of radical reformers during the Reformation, but the Restoration churches are the ones who had the longest lasting impact in terms of this ideology. The target and goal of the Restoration movement is in the name, to restore what they see as the practice of the early church before this corruption. Fun fact, this section that you're hearing right now is actually re-recorded. I had to delete a couple of minutes where I had started commentating on the current climate of evangelical theology and how it parallels with this ideology, and it kind of became a rant, and I was like, nope, nope, Nick, this is this is... Just looking at this denomination, no commentary, just objectively laying out the facts. But I have to admit, it's kind of hard. Honestly, once we start talking about like the Second Great Awakening and its influence on Christianity in America specifically, I get a little bit opinionated. Um, so the movement's major thrust and influence can be traced, like I just said, to the 19th century during the Second Great Awakening. This movement can be summarized in the popular axiom, no creed but the Bible or no creed but Christ, and that the movement was open about adhering to solo scriptura, contrary to the Protestant emphasis on sola scriptura. And we've talked about that on and off throughout this series, so I'm not going to rehash that here um, in the other episodes. So a key figure in this movement was a Presbyterian, he was a Scottish Presbyterian, if I remember correctly, who moved from Ireland to Pennsylvania. His name was Thomas Campbell, and he became convinced that creeds and confessions were only good for causing division in the church rather than being points of unity. The fact that he's a Campbell and my lineage as a Campbell makes me want to commentate more, but I do have a Beyond Luther Reformation special that talks about the Campbells and their role in helping John Knox during the Reformation. So we'll, we'll just stay focused, Nick. And carry on. Um, so Thomas Campbell was denounced by his fellow Presbyterians for his views, but he went on to react by forming the Christian Association of Washington. Additionally, he published a work called The Declaration and Address, where he expressed that schism and divisions were antichrist and the cause of confusion and every evil work. Campbell then would move into articulating that the church should only speak on what the scriptures speak about and be silenced where the scripture is silent or where there is no explicit explanation in the text. So then this is when Campbell would come to believe in credo-baptism opposed to pedo-baptism against his Presbyterian roots, but also abolished various church practices that were retained in Presbyterianism, such as the use of musical instruments and worship. Some have described this as Campbell just consistently applying the regulative principle of worship on the basis of solo scriptura. Now his son Alexander Campbell would actually be more influential and be more active in his work and consistent application of it. Olson summarizes, quote, Campbell's son Alexander was less scholarly than his father, but more dynamic and consistent in his application of his father's principles. He fought many public battles by means of debates against atheism, Mormonism, Unitarianism, Credalism, Secretarianism, Emotionalism, and even slavery, but he was singularly unsuccessful in bringing about church unity. 
his non-creedal movement to unify all Christians gave birth to one of the first denominations to be born in the United States. That is, both the movement and the denominations it spawned had and have no European roots. Now, this group known as the Campbellites were not the only Restorationists in the 19th century. Another group came from a Methodist, a Baptist, and a Presbyterian, joining hands and emphasizing that there should be an emphasis on conversion opposed to doctrine, and they became key movers in the revivalist movements such as the Cane Ridge Kentucky Revival. What is interesting about the Restorationists, however, is that they were not like some of the other revivalists who were heavily emotional-driven. In fact, the Restorationists put an emphasis on rationality and the intellect first and emotions that follow to the point where some people have said that they were influenced by the Enlightenment, which elevated human rationality. Just very interesting. So eventually, this group would come to hold to six basic principles that basically just stressed that Christ is the head of the church, the Bible is sufficient, and that deeds are more important than creeds. That is, practice is more important than doctrine. This group would be known as the Stonites after Barton Stone. Now, in 1832, we see the Stonites and the Campbellites actually working together in a meeting, joining for a brief time before various offshoots grew underneath the name of Christian churches or Churches of Christ. In addition to this, we also have what has formed the group called the Disciples of Christ. These congregational names came from the idea that no other label should be attached to Christians aside from labels that articulated allegiance to Christ. So Christian was appropriate. The Church of Christ was appropriate because it's the church that Christ founded, not a denomination. Same thing with Disciples of Christ. By having a denominational label, you're inadvertently pledging allegiance to some other thing other than Christ. So that was the mentality behind those church names. So those different names would be utilized by the Restoration churches. And also will point out that these churches were actually more ecumenical because their idea was by getting rid of these extra biblical or extra Christ labels, they could unify underneath the heading of being Christian. And so there was this more ecumenical tone in saying that they were Christians only, but not the only Christians. It was in the 20th century when they began to articulate that they were the only true Christians, which is kind of what some of them are known for. And we'll get to that here in a little bit. So Campbell and Stone became the benchmark for this movement, often being referred to as the Campbellites or the Stone-Campbell movement. However, because of their desire to stay away from labels, this affiliation is very loose for those even today who are within that movement or ideology. What we find is that this link between this root is really what kind of connects them all together. And there is usually a loose association with various offshoots coming from this group, right? With, again, the names of Christian churches, Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, things of that nature. They were considered the first non-denominational churches, though the term wasn't used today. So they consider themselves non-denominational, but they are the root of, not equivalent to, what we call non-denominational churches today. In other words, non-denominational churches came from this ideology, but they have kind of morphed into their own thing as time progressed. However, some of the core principles of this ideology remain with non-denominational churches. For example, why does someone generally affiliate with a non-denominational church? Because they don't like the labels of denominations. They are non-denominational. They are Christian only, right? 
And notice I did say general because that isn't the motivator for everyone. However, that is kind of the mentality of non-denominational churches, that we are Christians united in Christianity, not underneath a denominational umbrella. We'll revisit non-denominational in a second here. So while many within this movement share the name, such as Church of Christ or Christian Church or Disciples of Christ, they have very little to do with one another, generally aside from a common heritage and some distinctions, such as that anti-credalism, Christian-only mentality. This means that discussions on whether or not the, quote, Church of Christ, end quote, is a cult becomes kind of problematic on several fronts, because what you'll find is that online people will talk about, is the Church of Christ a cult? They're speaking of it in a very broad sense in which you really can't. And so those popular discussions on whether or not the Church of Christ is a cult become problematic on several fronts, the most obvious being that their commonalities are narrow and their differences wide. One Church of Christ may be akin to a sociological cult, while another may be more like a little corner Bible church. Theologically, despite the movement's rejection of creeds, they cannot be broadly classified as a theological cult because they don't broadly deviate from theological orthodoxy. This does not mean that they're immune to deviations, there surely are deviations, but broadly speaking, the movement broadly is still theologically orthodox. The commonality between the groups is generally noted as follows. Historical roots in the Second Great Awakening and rejecting extra-biblical doctrines and practices and even labels and titles and terminology. A desire for restoration of the New Testament church marked generally by simplicity in worship. Creeds and confessions are generally avoided. However, their views on creeds and confessions can range from these are utterly useless to these are utterly problematic, and they generally agree on how they view baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we will discuss below. Two other points of general agreement is that they are more intellectual and less emotional in terms of how they understand conversion and worship, and they are Arminian. They put a big emphasis on the intellect first, emotions second. Quoting Olson again, quote, what sets these denominations apart from each other in spite of their common heritage and distinctives? One group eschews the use of musical instruments in worship, others use them in worship. One group has cooperated enthusiastically with the ecumenical movement and adopted a more liberal stance towards the Bible and doctrine underneath the influence of the modern ideology. Others reject modern biblical scholarship and theological revision and tend to think of outsiders as not fully Christian. One group in particular admits to being a denomination, including having a headquarters, while others do not and strongly emphasize congregational independence. End quote. So when it comes to the churches of Christ, there are generally two branches or streams underneath that specific names They can usually be distinguished by their worship as one is understood as non-instrumental church of Christ. And they are more firm on rejecting denominationalism and a central headquarters. Generally, the non-instrumental Church of Christ is considered the most conservative branch of the larger movement. They hold to key essentials of the faith, yet still reject extra-biblical creeds, names, titles, etc. On the ground, there is a spectrum of how ecumenical the Church of Christ is with other denominations. Some hold to the Church of Christ as the only real Christians and reject cooperation wholesale, while others have been more open to ecumenical cooperation. This leads naturally again back to non-denominational churches, which again have roots in this restoration movement. Originally, the Campbell Stone movement had those non-denominational churches, with the term really showing up in the 20th century and then again developing into its own unique flavor apart from this traditional independent congregational movement. 
the non-denominational denomination is very diverse, but it's known principally for its tendency to focus on contemporary worship from music to presentation, meaning not only music, but also how they present their messages, scripture over tradition to various degrees, experience-focused living, and relevant teachings more so than theological teachings. But what I'm saying is that these churches focus more on application and daily living rather than exegesis of the text per se. You'll usually find like, let's quote a couple of verses and then let's build an application off of that um, without really going too much into the text. But this is a broad picture because there are expositional non-denominational churches and this just kind of goes to show where there is that diversity. So I'm, whenever I'm speaking broadly, I mean there's a more broad focus on experienced folks living and relevant teachings. But the most notable element of non-denominational churches is kind of interfaith interactions and also a more seeker-sensitive approach to outreach and ministry, which generally includes those things like incorporating cultural elements into the church for that sake of outreach, right? But really, to what degree this is happening in quote-unquote non-denominational churches is hard to say, especially with current trends where there are many independent or non-denominational churches that are popping up but look more conservative Baptist and less like the seeker-sensitive movement. Like There's been more pushback against that seeker-sensitive mentality, but I would say as a general rule, those are kind of like the outlines of what could highlight a non-denominational church. The whole point being is that the non-denominational movement comes from the restoration ideology and has its roots in that ideology. Regarding the restoration movements today um, in their most pure form, I guess, opposed to like the non-denominational form, the most controversial body is the International Churches of Christ or ICOC. This body is often noted to be the cult-like Church of Christ. So if we're talking about, is the Church of Christ a cult? Usually people are talking about the International Churches of Christ or those churches associated with the ICOC. Uh, for example, in evangelism, the ICOC would assign a discipler to a Christian to disciple them. They would have an assigned person to disciple you. And the Christian was expected to be obedient to this discipler in all personal decisions. They needed approval for every decision, including dating. This was for discipleship, for training, for showing the way, right? That's That was the mentality. But they would also have to confess their sins and have them recorded for future reference. It wasn't really until the 90s that these methods were relaxed, but they're not entirely gone. Additionally, those not baptized in the ICOC were considered damned. And those who were not baptized were to be distanced from, not shunned, but distanced from. So usually if we're talking about the more sociological cult of the Church of Christ, that's what people are talking about. However, there have been some instances where they're talking about like a non-instrumental Church of Christ, where it's more legalistic in its practice, that they could refer to it that way. So again, there's, there's a lot of factors at play here where you kind of have to take them on a case-by-case -case basis. A last honorable mention within this category is the Christian Church or the Disciples of Christ, which is formally organized into three manifestations, a local, regional, and general, uh, which moved away from that typical congregational structure, right? This is the formal Church of Christ. They have a general assembly that meets biannually 
and then an administrative committee that meets twice a year. It was actually this restructuring, this formation of this organization that caused for different splits, such as the Christian churches and the churches of Christ, both the instrumental and non-instrumental variations. So there's that. Let's go ahead and move into our other points because we're kind of getting lost here. Uh, Sources of authority. When it comes to sources of authority, we have already kind of spoken to this, right? It's pretty strict adherence to solo scriptura or no creed but the Bible. Some of the branches will have documentation outlining beliefs on topics. However, they do not see these as confessions. In terms of polity or church government, most of them are congregational and independent with head pastors being referred to as ministers most often. Like other congregational churches, the structure can vary a little bit with a plurality of ministers or elders and sometimes with a head minister over the plurality. Like with other congregational models, the number of elders or ministers depends on the size of the congregation. Cooperation with other bodies and organizations can vary between different congregations and this movement. When it comes to sacraments or ordinances, they prefer ordinances, and this is where they really have a lot more in common with one another. Uh, The restorational churches generally have agreed that communion is pure memorialism every Sunday. Additionally, they are credo-baptist, meaning that they don't hold to infant baptism, and they understand that immersion follows confession and it is necessary for salvation for the remission of sins. Now, whether or not they describe this as baptismal regeneration will differ In fact, there have been some ex-Church of Christ members who will describe it as baptismal justification instead. And really, you still can't pin this as being articulated the same in different congregations. The finer details of this baptism for the remission of sins is the point of divergence between this restoration line of thinking. However, they do hold that baptism is necessary for salvation in the same way that others and these denominations that we have talked about previously have articulated as well. Um, So again, whether or not they use baptismal regeneration or how they articulate the finer details of the doctrine can vary in terms of distinctives and emphasis. We've already talked about that quite a bit. What can be said here is that because of the church of Christ and others within the restoration movement are not monolithic, it is important that we try to avoid as many broad brushes as we can when we're talking about them Additionally, because they don't care for or about theological designations that are considered extra biblical, some discussions may be more difficult to navigate, such as their belief in baptism. A good example of this is in my experience when I've talked to a couple of people from the Church of Christ, I noticed that a few of them don't use the word Trinity, but they use the word Godhead to describe the Trinity, which makes it a little bit confusing. Uh, but that's just another example of how they try to avoid extra biblical language. Because if you don't know, Godhead is used in the King James version, uh, when it comes to describing the nature of God. So I think that's going to wrap this particular installment. I have to admit that it feels like my messier episode or installment because of how diverse the movement is. I'm not fully sure how helpful this episode actually is as a standalone episode. However, I do know that the Church of Christ was requested many times, and so I wanted to cover them to some degree, especially because non-denominational churches were heavily requested as well, and their root in the Campbellstone movement. And so I hope that was helpful to some degree. I'm hoping that if 
for nothing else, it'll help you think about the ideologies that came out of the restoration movement and how they've influenced other spheres of Christian circles. But nonetheless, that's going to conclude this particular installment. The next installment will be a miscellaneous episode, uh, kind of rapid firing through some groups and their history very briefly. So that's going to be our focus. It's going to be like bullet point kind of thing where we just hammer some denominations out as we wrap up the denomination series. That will be the last episode. And so I hope that as we finish this last focused denomination episode, that you have found this series to be helpful in some shape or form. And that said, I do want to conclude this episode by saying, if you are part of the Restorational Movement, if you're a part of the Church of Christ, I hope that I represented your movement fair. Um, I tried to use your sources as well as other historical sources to come to these conclusions. And until next time, God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.